0: So a few months ago, uh, my best childhood friend, Chris, who lived across the street uh, from the time I was six until I was 11, sent me an email with a picture attached. In the picture, we're in his backyard. Uh, It's fall and the the leaves are bare. Uh, I'm probably about 42 inches tall. I'm wearing burgundy bell bottoms, tough skins from Sears, as I remember. Uh, I'm wearing navy blue Keds tennis shoes, striped tube socks, and a hand-me-down Tennessee Volunteers football jersey that I remember being very proud of at the time. Uh, Chris is mostly a blur in a striped shirt and blue jeans uh, kicking the ball off my toe. We both had blonde hair that was cut down below our ears, reminiscent of the Beatles or the Monkees or the Partridge family. I remember when Chris and his family moved from California to Knoxville. Until that time, most of my relationships were a result of a rule that my mother, who's watching this morning and is uh, by far the wisest of mothers we celebrate today, a rule that she imposed on my poor brother Jim, who was a year older. She would say, Jim, you can't play with your friends unless your brother can play too. This was a blessing and a curse. It was a blessing for her because it got me out of the house. It was a curse for him uh, because he could spend hours playing thoughtful games, building Lincoln Log forts and orchestrating elaborate battles with plastic army men with his friends who shared a similar uh, passion for those activities. Um, But he, on account of uh, that rule, had to also endure his bratty little brother. Who would rather be playing ball or starting a fire, or exploring uh, beyond the permissible boundaries uh, of the neighborhood? The picture that was faded that Chris sent brought back clear memories. Uh, I don't know about your memories of childhood. For me, it's the smell of grass and the taste of dirt uh, and the soft, faded orange jersey and the scratchy, flaky, uh, rubbery knee pads in the Uh, serious tough skins, Um, most of all it brought back memories of what it felt like to have a true friend for the first time. For those precious years we were inseparable. We liked the same things, we could build a bike ramp, he could play football and baseball, he could throw rocks, he had a great collection of baseball cards and a guinea pig. We played on teams together. We shared victories and defeats. I think we even shared punishments from time to time. We competed with each other. We wrestled and fought, but we always made up quickly and it seemed to deepen our relationship. We lived life together, plans, schemes, experiences, and adventures. We had a solidarity of purpose. He could start a fire and he wasn't afraid of doing a little trespassing. Our friendship felt like I was always going where I wanted to go and doing what I wanted to do, but alongside someone who wanted the same things and wanted nothing more than to do it with me. I know what it's like. I knew what it was like to be lonely, to not have friends. And then I discovered what it was like to have a friend. I don't know if you sense it in your life, perceive it in the lives of others or perhaps see it in your children's lives, but people today are not just isolated by the pandemic. People seem increasingly lonely. In spite of the endless ways to virtually connect and an endless roster of associations and clubs and causes that you can join, there seems to be a lack, a pervasive lack of companionship in our culture. A feeling of being left out, misunderstood, passed over, shut out, excluded, unsupported, undervalued, unappreciated, unpursued. A study by UNICEF in 1997 reported that infants in custodial care that lacked human contact failed to thrive and often die. In 2010, a report of adults over 45 suggested that one-third, or 45 million adults, experience chronic loneliness, including about 30% of married couples. The US Health Resources and Service Administration a report this year are focusing on 28% of retirees who live alone and the high percentage experiencing severe loneliness noted that loneliness is as damaging to your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day and more dangerous than obesity, and thereby more costly than obesity and smoking to, to our social programs. In February, an article from the Harvard Graduate School of Education, Making Caring Common Project, is titled, How the Pandemic Has Deepened an Epidemic of Loneliness and What We Can Do About It, reported that studies show more than half of young people between the ages of 18 and 25 and mothers of young children reported feeling frequently, almost all the time, or all the time, that they were lonely. The percentages are even worse for heavy users of social media People who are socially connected, virtually. Happy Mother's Day. (laughs) Especially uh, those of you mothers who fall into that category of feeling alone. Given the statistics, it would be foolish for us to think that this is just a problem for other people. That in the church, this isn't something that we experience ourselves. Only a few of us have experienced COVID. Probably more of us have experienced loneliness during this time. Chances are that there's some here this morning that in spite of what we may see on the outside, inwardly are feeling disconnected, lonely, unsupported, overlooked, undervalued. Maybe it's you into this serious pandemic of loneliness, Jesus, the great physician, reminds us in the gospel lesson from John 15 that there's a vaccine, there's a cure, you don't need an appointment, you don't even need a shot. In chapter 15, Jesus and the disciples are drawing close to Jerusalem. You may recall that the last time I preached... I mentioned that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14, God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And how then in John's Gospel, Jesus laid claim to God's name, I am, with seven I am statements. What you should also know about Jesus's I am statements is that these proclamations are tied to miracles. Every time Jesus says, I am, you should be able to find an associated miracle that verifies the message. It's the proof of the message. For example, in John chapter 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And in verse 35, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. In John 8, verse 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but have the light of life. After which Jesus in chapter 9 heals a man born blind, verifying, proving the message. Here in John 15, as they're about to enter Jerusalem where Jesus or Judas will betray Jesus, the disciples will deny and abandon him. The Jews will put him on trial, and the Romans will torture and crucify him. Jesus shares with the disciples the seventh and final I am statement. In verse 1 of chapter 15, he says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every vine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, it is that he bears much fruit. He he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I share this with you to give you some context for understanding Verses 9 to 11, which are um, the beginning of our text for this morning. Jesus says, If the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. At this point, the disciples are, are struggling to understand. They can tell, I mean, this is a lesson about agriculture. What he's saying isn't hard for them to, to, to get, grasp, but how it applies to them is, it, it makes perfect sense that if you cut a branch off, it's gonna die. It's gonna wither up and dry and be thrown into fire. If It's, it's only if it's attached to the vine that it has life flowing in it and it produces fruit. But there is much more to the allegory than just fruit bearing and pruning. If you've ever grown grapes, you know that grapes grow like crazy. In a single growing season, shoots can go 30 feet in any direction. There can be tons of them. The problem with growing grapes is that the more vines you have, the more leaves you have. The more leaves you have, the more shade you have. The more shade you have, the fewer grapes you have. And the more branches you have, the lower your production. So what you have to do every year is you have to cut away all that excess growth. You have to take away all that shade and all that extra branch that draws from the vine but doesn't produce fruit and you have to take those productive branches and they have to be pruned I don't know about you but when I think about pruning and the vine dresser coming along with sharp shears and cutting I mean the the, the message that's communicated is if if you're a branch you're going to get pruned is one that should be communicating to you that that there's pain in life that life connected to or abiding in the vine is, is, it comes with a promise. It doesn't come with a promise of grow wild, do what you want to do. It comes with a promise of pruning and cultivation. It's a shocking message, and one that I'm sure the disciples really just can't quite get because they haven't seen it fully played out for them. They don't understand. The Father's loved me, and so I've loved you. Abide in my love. I say this to you so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. These are things that we want, but it's a shocking message that comes with cutting off dead growth, cutting off unproductive vines, cutting off uh, fruitless branches. To be a living fruit bearing branch We have to know that the vine dresser is going to put the shears to our life. Branches that bear fruit are pruned and cut way back. Jesus says, if fathers love me, I've loved you. Abide in my love. That's what this is. It's not a cuddly kind of love that tries to keep children from ever getting their feelings hurt. It's not one that, that keeps us from ever being disappointed or rejected or having feelings like that. So long as there's life flowing from the vine into the branches and bearing fruit, there's going to be season after season of growth and pruning. What the disciples not do not yet know, as Jesus has not yet shared it with them, is that he is going to suffer. He's talked to them, he's he's told them about the cross, but they still haven't been able to get it. They still, in in this illustration, are probably wondering, what does he mean? They cannot yet see the joy that's on the other side of the suffering, because they haven't gotten to the other side of the suffering. They don't understand what the commandment to love really means. Is it, if it's connected to abiding, and what does abiding really mean? If Jesus' statement, I am the vine and you are the branches, is the message, what is the miracle that verifies the message. For us to be fruit-bearing branches requires this miracle. It will require something beyond our human capacity, something we can't do for ourselves. Where's the miracle that will verify the message? In verses 13 to 15, Jesus has not perform the miracle right then, but he tells them what it's going to be. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. When Jesus says greater love, he's using the Greek word for love, which is agape. Agape. It's hard for the disciples to really understand it. It's a word that translates to charity, it's often associated with God's love for God's people. It's also a kind of love that speaks to uh, sort of an altruistic love that gives without any expectation of reciprocity or, or, uh, or return. For us, when we talk about love, we use love all the time for everything that we like we love chocolate we love ice cream love having a day off now <clears throat> i love my wife too the boys love their mother happy mother's day in 1960 c.s lewis wrote a, a book called the four loves which is i found to be particularly helpful in thinking through this in the four loves Lewis speaks about four ancient loves in in sort of Greek thinking uh, in the time at the the time uh, when Jesus was alive. It's the ancient Greek loves of love, of affection, eros or romantic love, friendship, and charity. Said a little bit about friendship already and the desire people have to be in relationships uh, of friendship because there's so much loneliness, but. There are a couple of different types of loves that we, that we need to see in, in what Jesus is saying because of what goes on in the passage. In the four loves, if you're to rank the four loves in ancient times, philia, or the the brotherly love or friendship, and agape, God's love, or charity, or this altruistic love, are the, the highest forms of love. Um, the, uh, the other two types of love are kind of natural loves. They, they just occur naturally, biologically, and uh, because we we have desires that drive us in our affections in one direction or another. Of friendship, Lewis writes that to the ancients, friendship seemed to be the happiest and most fully human of all the loves, the crown of life in the school of virtues. He argues that the modern world, in comparison, ignores it. He says it's something quite marginal, not the main course of a ban- in life's banquet. He questions, how has this come about in modern times? He's writing in the 60s, so a while ago, it's probably just gotten worse since then. His answer to the question, first and foremost, is that few people value friendship because few people experience it. The problem today is that What's possible for humans comes with no guarantee that we'll attain it, that we'll have it. People need friendship, they, they hope for affection. When they find it, they feel that taking it to the highest level in our society means romantic love. But for Lewis, you know, affectionate eros rooted in our nature are really grounded in emotions that change. There are sentiments like the affection between parents and children, or these kinds of attractions that are biological and romantic between between lovers. Where Where lovers normally face each other, face to face, absorbed in each other, Lewis points out that friends are side by side absorbed in a common interest, or a common purpose. Lewis suggests that pursuing friendship, you'll never find it. Friendship is found when you pursue something else that you share in common, that you're passionate about, that is the center of your ambitions. Perhaps today it seems that people are so starved for friendship, because today people are so confused about what their purpose is. What are they pursuing? What are we pursuing? What common purpose uh, is going to draw people together? Mostly people pursue self-interest. You know, I don't, I don't think much about Joel's wealth. I don't think much about anybody else's needs. You know, if I'm pursuing those things that satisfy me, Who's gonna come alongside and participate in that? If you ever wonder why relationships seem so fragile today, perhaps it's because people increasingly live lives unsure of their purpose, and then try to build lives on the shifting sand of emotional loves. They skip straight to Eros, bypassing friendship. They go straight to affection, without first having a common purpose, out of which mutual affections grow. If you follow what Lewis is saying, in verses 13 to 15, Jesus is appealing to the disciples' understanding of friendship as the ground, as the foundation for the happiest and most fully human love. By calling the disciples his friends, Jesus is saying to them that they're bound together in a purpose. They're heading in the same direction. There's some mutuality, some connectedness. They're heading toward Jerusalem. They're heading toward the cross. They're heading toward pruning. They're heading toward suffering. They're heading there together. Jesus is making it clear to disciples that they're no longer bound by the affections of students for a teacher or teacher for a student. Until now, Jesus' followers have been his followers. He's been their master. Now he's taking their love to the new level. One of shared passion, purpose, and direction. The greatest act of love one person can do for another, Jesus says, is to sacrifice his own life. This turns that all around. It builds on that foundation. It takes them from, this is the greatest thing that you can possibly achieve in your life. We all know that. That's what we, in the Greek language, understand as being this highest pinnacle of, of human love. And then he's pointing to a love that's higher, one that they can't quite understand. They don't understand. They, I mean, he's told them, but it hadn't sunk in what this is—to lay down your life for somebody else, or how to abide in God's love, or to abide in Jesus' love—is to abide in what is coming next—the kind of love that sacrifices itself. Jesus is not talking about virtues and moral directions, or trying to draw our attention to the importance of, of charitable giving. Jesus is drawing the disciples' uh, attention to the greatest love. A love beyond the love of human relationships, a love that is only accessible in Christ by being by abiding, by remaining in the vine. You know, it's really hard to understand this passage without thinking back to that to that vine and branches and fruit producing and clipping and pruning. That has to be done because Jesus is is just building on that point abiding can be painful but it's important in the midst of that pain to remain because it's that pruning that's going to produce the fruit Jesus draws their attention to the greatest love of human relationships their friendships and then it directs them to something that for them and for us perhaps is unimaginable The miracle he's about to show them, accepting their punishment, paying their debt, and giving up his own life for their life. We tend to breeze by what Jesus says oftentimes in Scripture. Sometimes it's nearly impossible for us to be moved by what is so familiar in the Bible. For many, the greatest hope of love is the best of what is humanly possible. For people who are out there today who are feeling uh, lonely, isolated, their highest hope is that one true friend. What Jesus is extending to us this morning is something greater than that. But we have to abide in it, in the pruning, and in the pain, and the suffering of it, so that we can also abide. And the life that it brings, and the fruit and the joy that comes on the other side. Jesus calls them friends so that he can take them from their highest hope to something even greater, and he takes us there too. Jesus makes it possible for his friends to abide because of the miracle, his love for us on the cross. He brings agape down and makes it accessible. If you read it through, if you just swap out every time that Jesus uses the word love in here with agape, and you think about it in terms of the cross and the love that he extends to us, that self-sacrificial love, it's different than us thinking about loving chocolate or ice cream or, you know, fast cars or TV shows or things like that. How we use love so much. It's a it's a love that is beyond the love that we feel is most necessary in our life and oftentimes most fleeting. What does God-bearing agape love look like in the church? Think about it like this. If people in the church are feeling left out, misunderstood, passed over, shut out, excluded, unsupported, undervalued, unappreciated, or unpursued, For us to be fruitful we're going to experience some pain as a church we're going to have to abide in that expectation it's not that we go out and pursue painful situations necessarily you know it's not like stepping in front of a bus to try to bring people to jesus Um, but we should expect that what's going to be required of us is going to be agape love altruistic self-sacrificing, without expectation of return kind of love. Because you know what? People are hard to love. A lot of times what you get in return for trying to be loving is not love in return. If we expect people to love us in response to the way in which we love them, we'll do nothing but hate them. Because they'll disappoint us most, if not all, of the time. You know, we're not a church of shade. We're not a church that lets people come in and just ramble around and grow in all directions without any kind of discipline or direction, without any kind of correction, without any kind of instruction. This is the kind of church that wants to to be pruned and so that we can be fruitful because the fruit that's produced through us that is the glory of God. It's the reward for his sacrifice If we abide in him and he in us, this is what our life is going to be like. It's not going to be easy. You know, we're not trying to sell you a car and sell you on all of its great features and not tell you that it was in a flood or that it had been in a major accident or that the wheels are about to fall off. For us to stand here and try to entice you into something that is going to be comfortable and it's just going to be consoling and we're going to provide you with shade and comfort uh, would be a disservice to you because that's not what church is. Church is us building friendships around a shared purpose and around a shared mission and a shared passion and that passion is Jesus Christ. We want to know him more. We want to grow deeper in relationship with him. We want to pursue him uh, in some Measure in comparison to the way in which he's pursued us. That is the root of friendship. That's the root of Christian friendship. It's why in in Acts, Barnabas is encouraging them to remain faithful. Remaining is the same word as abiding. Stay that way. Faithful is not just, I believe everything's going to be okay today. Faithful is Jesus died on the cross and saved me and that's all that I've got. And that's all that I need. If we pursue that together with passion, friendships will be formed as other people come and join us around that same thing. That is the work that we have ahead of us. And it's not going to be easy. And it's not going to be pain-free. It's going to be pruning. In verse 15, it seems like Jesus is making an about face on the gospel by establishing a law that you have to go love one another. And you do. You do. But you will. It's because those friendships that are going to be cultivated around that common purpose are going to produce love among and between us. Perhaps where it doesn't exist yet. He's not saying to Peter, go love James, or James, go love John. He's saying, all of you guys love Peter. All of you guys love John. There's nobody who's going to be in this fellowship that's not going to be loved by us. When I don't feel like I'm uh, included, when I'm feeling hurt and excluded and and upset, you may not be able to stand being around me, but you should anyway. (laughs) Because that's what we do. We love each other through those hard times. We love each other through the pain. We love each other through being obnoxious. And we love each other that way because it's painful to us and we experience that painfulness as as, as pruning and that pruning as what's necessary for fruit to be produced. We abide with each other and we abide with Christ for what's ahead, for the great miracle, the great promise of something greater and richer and deeper and more significant even than friendship, which right now many of us might think, that's all I need. Wouldn't you love to go from what all you need to more than you can imagine? Is there anyone here that is feeling depressed or disenfranchised or isolated or alone? Longing for a true friend? Jesus is extending not just affection to you today. He's extending agape to you today. He's offering you something greater than you could have hoped for. He's offering a purposeful life, a fruitful life. I've said to managers, if you love me, give me work to do. Jesus is not only choosing you to be his friends, but he's extending agape to you by pulling you in, drawing you into the work, and sending you out to do it. Go love one another. Abiding in him is having his life flow into us. The Holy Spirit producing fruit through us. It's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Love. The first one. He's offering to you whatever you ask in His name according to His purpose. He'll give it to you if we abide in Him. Trust in Him. Remain in Him. Join with us in pursuing Him. It's our purpose it's hard for us to understand as people who desire only friendship can't see beyond it can't think of anything more but that thing that Jesus promised to us in uh, in John chapter 15 no greater love as a man than this but that he lay down his life for a friend is the miracle that's coming ahead of the disciples, that's going to prove to them that this greater love is real. It's accessible. It's brought, been brought down to you. It's been given to you. It's extended to you. It's, ex- it's going to be in you. It's going to pass through you. We're the greatest hope that the world has for this pandemic of loneliness, loneliness, We are. Nobody else is going to do it. The government's not going to do it. The club's not going to do it. uh, You know, a cause isn't going to do it. Instagram's not going to do it. We are the solution. Because we're abiding in Christ. And He's proven to us the power of His work.